Welcome to Frankly Speaking. This is a new podcast on responsible business by Frank Bold, the European public interest law firm. I'm Richard Howitt, and after several years of debating responsible business issues inside the European Parliament, I host our discussion of the latest political, legal and business developments in the field of corporate sustainability, business and human rights. We speak frankly and personally about what moves policymakers, business and activists to make responsible business the norm. Today, critical minerals. Many of our listeners will have heard about the dilemmas about cobalt, which is crucial for the technology of every mobile phone on the planet, but whose mining is concentrated in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the human rights record of mining operations has been widely questioned. Yet the energy transition itself, the production of batteries and electric vehicles, the transmission of renewable energy is reliant on minerals, including key minerals such as cobalt, nickel and lithium and what are known as rare earth elements. Minerals which are concentrated in a small number of countries globally, including China, which have shown themselves able to cut off supply for geopolitical reasons. International institutions, the United States and now the European Union have been developing critical minerals strategy and Europe's proposed Critical Raw Materials Act is itself reaching a critical stage towards its agreement. To explain all of this, frankly speaking, welcomes Mikhail Rekord, resource policy expert at the German organisation PowerShift, which itself researches and develops policy on international trade, raw materials and climate policy as part of its mission to support an ecological and fairer world economy. Mikhail formerly worked on projects in the Philippines and for Germany's raw materials network AK Rostov, and he's author of the book Hot Metals for a Cooler Climate. Michael, a very warm welcome to Frankly Speaking. Thank you very much for having me here, Richard. So let's start off quite simply. As I say, people heard of probably cobalt, but so there'll be many of our listeners that don't know the entire story. What, what exactly are critical minerals and why is there a problem? Yeah, critical minerals. I always think about human rights violation and environmental degradation, but it is a uh, technical term. So criticality means it is necessary, as you mentioned in your introduction, for uh, all the technologies uh, we need now and in the future, uh, like airplanes, uh, mobile phones, etc. And they are located in countries that um, are not that democratic and not that free in their trade policies uh, as the European Union, for example, China or Russia. So they list these raw materials and it is included lithium, cobalt, rare earth elements. And nowadays um, the EU is also talking about strategic raw materials and include copper, aluminium and some other metals and minerals we need every day and every minute more or less. And we've seen initiatives, as I say, in the United States and a number of countries. And President von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, she actually used her State of the Union address in the European Parliament to announce this. So this is seen as big politics in Brussels. So what exactly is the European Union planning to do about this? Yeah, actually, it's a kind of old issue uh, because the EU started in 2008 with the Raw Materials Initiative to bring the issue of access to the international raw material markets on the political agenda. And because of the our Russian attack on the Ukraine, uh, the COVID pandemia, and uh, the 
the issues with the supply chains. Uh, they now feel the pressure to react on um, on the raw materials issues again. And now they announced last year the Critical Raw Materials Act and the uh, EU Commission um, released a proposal in March. And in the moment, today, in September, they start with a trilogue already. So it's a very quick, intensive process to have a law on this critical raw materials. And essentially, their aim is to develop more in the European Union with friendly allies of the European Union, uh, but also to speed up the system for getting permits, to streamline it, to speed up environmental impact assessment, uh, to classify these projects as nationally strategic projects, which again exempts them from some of the normal normal safeguards. So that that has a an upside in terms of getting uh, this done, but it has a downside in terms of the protections and uh, and safeguards, of course. Now, as you say, the trilogue has begun for non-Brussels insiders. That's the negotiation which takes place between governments uh, in the European Council and the parliamentarians in the European Parliament, where they hammer out the final text of a uh, any piece of European legislation. So again, if you're watching this carefully, for those that are outside of the process, what are the critical issues in the, the trilogue? Which are the, the issues that you think are going to make the difference on whether this is an effective or not an effective piece of legislation? Yes, we see a lot of issues and especially um, the whole process is very industry driven. So it is really to secure the supply of raw materials for the European industry. Uh, and that was the proposal of the EU. And now the European Parliament brought in a lot of issues regarding human rights um, and indigenous people's rights. And they also mentioned uh, sufficiency. So I think one, one of the issues we, we don't see in the early proposal, and it's still underdeveloped there in the um, debate, is the role of the high consumption of the European Union. So we really have to talk about sufficiency. Uh, in, in some parts also, we have to talk about reduction. This is one issue. The second issue is a uh, part could be a strengthening of the circular economy. Because if we use metals for longer than 10 years or 20 years, uh, we can resmelt them and reuse them in the future. Um, even there, the proposal of the EU Commission was quite weak. But the Parliament was active there, and we hope uh, they strengthened this paragraph. Then is the question, you mentioned it, uh, the EU is talking about strategic projects. Strategic projects means that raw materials like copper, cobalt, lithium, and others uh, shall be mined in the EU, uh, especially Spain, Portugal, Sweden, Finland, where we see a lot of pressure of communities on the ground. And this strategic projects could be also done outside of Europe. So we see or we fear that there is an even more increased uh, pressure on indigenous communities and local communities, peasant communities are in countries of Latin America, Africa, and Asia. And these strategic projects have certain criterias. And we see that these criterias were in the uh, initial proposal of the commission quite weak. So for example, the uh, CS triple D, the due diligence law the EU is working on in the moment also, uh, wasn't there in the beginning. It is now, but it has to be defended against the member states. And I think human rights is a huge issue. 
indigenous people's rights will be a huge issue. Sufficiency and circular economy are for us few of the main parts. Okay, let's. Uh, it's really interesting. So let's take those one by one, if we we may. May um, the um, sufficiency issue, the circularity issue, and then the due diligence issue. So on sufficiency, uh, to to start with. Um, there's a classic argument in the sustainability field that do we want more development? We want sustainable development, but there's a lot of poverty in the world and we're not actually uh, tackling the inequalities. Um, or do we, are we over consuming as a world? And it's, you know, we're using six planets at the moment. Of, and uh, do we need to scale back on our consumption? And that is the classic dis argument that goes on. It often goes on between global north and global south and of course in, in the case of these critical minerals many governments in the global south want to exploit the potential and get the economic advantages that come from this uh this and see some of the climate and um sustainability arguments to be protectionist there's no easy answer to that balancing act but what do you say about overconsumption versus better sustainable development yeah, I think we have to balance both. And the issue of overconsumption, I would address here the EU and not countries like the Philippines, Namibia or Bolivia who have a right also to have a certain development. Uh, I think it would be great if they don't copy one-to-one -one the German or the Chinese way because uh, this might be overconsumption. But um, especially the EU has a important role. I think we're 6 to 7% of the global population, but we consume 25 to 30% of the global raw materials. So this is, there's an injustice. Uh, and um, so therefore, we have to think where we need metals and where, where we can change our metal consumption. One part is, for example, the mobility sector. I mean, we are building, especially I'm based in Berlin, in Germany, you know, our automobile industry is building in the moment uh, two tons and heavier cars to move, in average, 1.2 people uh, one hour a day. So this kind of mobility uh, is, well, not uh, sustainable uh, and it's not working for the future. So we really have to address the mobility sector uh, and we have to address reduction of this consumption. There was a, a report um, from the University of Leuven and Eurometaux. Eurometaux is the industry association of the mining sector. And they said in 2050, we need 2,100% more lithium than in 2020. So 2,000% more. This is really unbelievable. Uh, but they, what they didn't say, or what they didn't write in the report, they said it in the presentation, 60 to 65% of this consumption is only going to the automobile sector. So we see a massive greenwashing of the mining industry because they say, oh, we need it for renewables and the energy transition, but they include the energy transition in the mobility sector. And of course, we need a decarbonization. Yes, we need smaller, lighter, but less uh, mobiles, uh, um, cars. And I think yeah, this is one of the uh, conflicts we don't see tackled by the EU Commission and we don't see tackled by the European Parliament in the moment. And, and the, the projection is that we'll need, by 2035, 336 new mines uh, um, if we go on the, these current assumptions. Now, what that does for energy uses and 
itself contributes to climate change is is absolutely something that needs to be looked at within this. Um, let's take your second point, which is circularity. Uh, a lot of people, again, will know that the European Union has policies for a circular economy, um, but they seem to be a bit missing here. The European Parliament's put them in. Uh, uh, but again, not so many people know that it's today, it is extremely difficult to recycle, for example, batteries and the, the minerals within within battery technology. Hopefully that will change in the the years to come. But when it comes to circularity, what is it exactly that you would like to see? Well, one part, it would be great to address the design. So we need a product designed uh, for circularity. Um, and we see also some other regulations coming up uh, where this is tackled, but it should be also a priority for uh, Critical Raw Materials Act. The other thing is where there might be the need for help uh, for the member states is collecting and sorting because this is th something where the value is quite low. So you, there's less industry uh, initiatives in this sector. And at the same time, collection and sorting of old products and old metals is a key to have them uh, remind uh, in the in the process and your third point which is about due diligence and the parallel discussions that are going on in the european union on the corporate sustainability due diligence directive cs triple d that we've often talked about on frankly frankly speaking now the european governments in the council said in the uh, draft legislation that they wanted major international, let's say, sustainability agreements. I'm particularly thinking there, those in the OECD and the International Labour Organization, the ILO. They said those they wanted those to apply. But when they were asked whether the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive should apply, I think they voted against, but the Parliament voted for. And of course, due diligence is 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 more detailed in its obligation for companies to really find out what's happening and to act on what's happening in their their supply chain um what do you think the, the outcome and why is it important that the due diligence directive is um cross-referenced here with uh, and included within the critical raw materials act we read carefully on uh, the annual reports by Global Witness on environmental defenders. And mining is one of the main issues why people are killed every year. Uh, so this shocking documents, and we have so many other reports by Amnesty, by Bread for the World, uh, we as PowerShift also did some, uh, Human Rights Watch. And um, mining is a very sadly deadly sector for activists. So we really have to be careful. Our, and companies like uh, automobile industry, like um, heavy machinery industry, using this raw materials, they, are, they don't invest into mines in the moment, but they have a long supply chain and they have power to address these issues. Um, and therefore, due diligence, human rights due diligence, environmental due diligence, climate due diligence is one part to involve the whole industry and put pressure on the mining sector. And we see this pressure is partly working in the moment. So this is one thing. The second thing is I worked before 
on the battery regulation. And this has especially parts on human rights and environment um, um, due diligence. It was, my knowledge, the first time that environment due diligence was part of law in the European Union. And uh, it was better clarified what we expect from companies doing exercise of this due diligence. Uh, and therefore, we were a little bit surprised about the commission's uh, proposal that was not aligning with their own laws on the battery regulation. This is uh, the second point. The third point, what we fear is uh, there might be a comeback of certification schemes and industry schemes. Uh, we have to be very careful uh, with the wording in the final act um, because a lot of companies say, well, if I have a certificate, that's enough because then people checked and uh, we have audits and everything is fine on the ground. But that's not true. I mean, certification and industry schemes could be one possibility to exercise or could help you as one part of your due diligence. Um, and it's not reliable enough to only rely on a certification scheme or a certification. And that parallel discussion has taken place in the due diligence directive um, negotiations because, as you say, certification and multi-stakeholder initiatives do have their role to play and many of them are extremely valuable. But the idea that you only have to sign up to one of them and you comply is not a level of uh, proof or assurance that can be said to be adequate. I couldn't uh, agree uh, agree with you more. On your, your first point about the due diligence directive, there's this um, legal term, it's in Latin, lex specialis. And what it means is that courts and lawyers uh, say that if there's a specific piece of legislation that overrides a general piece of legislation. And so what the lawyers are arguing is that unless the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive is quoted in the Critical Raw Materials Act, that the Critical Raw Materials Act will override it and due diligence won't be properly covered. So uh, sorry to all of you out there for introducing a bit of Latin into frankly speaking this week, but it's a really important argument as this the, this trialogue uh, um, uh, continues. Now, uh, Michael, you talk about some of the concerns about mines. And by the way, I agree with you, the pressure has, has worked to some extent, and some of the leading mining companies have done some important work, and we should, should credit them um, for doing that. But the historic um, problems of tend to be people thrown off their land, as you say, often indigenous people and uh, breach of land rights. That often mines are in conflict areas, security is used, but then security uh, um, forces don't uh, respect human rights. Uh, that local um, uh, affected communities around mines don't get the social benefits, but often get environmental um, harms. And even at the end of the mining period, which is often over many years, the decommissioning doesn't isn't done in a way that uh, offers sustainable future for the affected communities or or for the land involved. So these are some of the the historic problem. And yet, some people, not only historic, sadly. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll accept that. Um, uh, although, again, the mining companies do come on. To frankly speaking, we'd like to hear from you as well. But but what worries me in this is that there's going to be a mining boom. This is about more mines, more mines in Europe, as you've said, 
and in the world um and what are people going to think what's society going to think what are european citizens thinking about all of this this is this shouldn't just be an industry discussion and a regulator discussion it should be a people discussion what what sort of feedback and knowledge do you have of where people stand on these issues it depends if there is a mine in their neighborhood or not uh, because i think mining is far away from the local daily realities uh we we have uh, most of the minerals. I can talk for Germany. 99.7% of all metals we use are imported from somewhere else. We are quite resource poor. Uh, we had some copper mines in the past, but in 8080, we imported most of us from our form former colony like uh, Namibia and other places. So we have to import that. So for people in Germany, it's not in the mind that we use metals in our shower, coffee machine, mobility, bike, whatever we, we are doing in our housing, everywhere are metals. And also this boom uh, is not experienced. Uh, and this boom you mentioned that might come, I'm not sure if this will work. Um, you mentioned the number of mines we need for, for, for new technologies. Because when the Club of Rome released its report in 1972, uh, since then, we need, I think, six times more metals. We produce six times more metals already now. Uh, so there was already a big boom from the 2000s on. And one reason is, of course, also the development of countries like China, Indonesia, uh, and also in the capitals of Brazil, Nigeria, South Africa, and elsewhere. So our way of living is copied uh, to other places. Our ways of mobility are copied. So I don't see that there, there is the poss possibility uh, to uh, yeah, extend this kind of uh, lifestyles uh, to the future because metals are, well, we, we won't have them forever. They're not sustainable. You mine them out and then they're, then they're are with us <laughs> in the best case they are long with us they are staying in the buildings for a hundred hundred of years but uh, then they're gone also the the term of circular economy is a little bit misleading because it's more a spiral uh spiral industry because we are losing them with with every collection with every sorting with every uh resmelting with every reproduction of, of a product and this is one issue the other issue you mentioned how are the people locally uh discussing about that and we get a lot of frustration uh, from inside of Europe, especially Spain, north of Sweden, but also uh, associated regions, Serbia. Uh, we also uh, have contacts with people from Ukraine. They are really afraid if the war ends, what happens next? Is then the European industry coming and destroying parts of the uh, countryside uh, because they need or they want the mines? And we're also in contact with a lot of communities in Latin America, Africa, and um, Asia. And they are all afraid that they lose their land, their place where they were born, or where their, their parents, grandparents, grand-grand-grandparents are buried. And um, some of them say, well, your green transition is the reason uh, why we are losing our livelihood. And I would say, well, it's not the green transition, it's mainly the mobility transition. Um, but, but anyway, yes, I mean, uh, we have, um, 
we are accountable for for partly for that and i think we have to do our homework here in europe and for me this is especially reduce the consumption of metals and minerals especially the primary metals and minerals and make sure that the metals we need for the future are traded in a way that we can also use them for the next generation and the generation after that etc you mentioned latin america and as you say the policies around minerals have been now for over a decade and you personally worked on the conflict minerals regulation which we dealt with when i was in the european parliament and which was attempt to to ensure that minerals that europe imported um didn't contribute to conflict uh, particularly dr congo but there's been a recent academic study looking in to latin america and countries like colombia peru and bolivia that still says that there's a very clear and direct correlation between where mines are and where conflict is so that's quite sobering you know now or roughly a decade after the conflict minerals regulation looking back on it um was it effective are there some gains that you can see and are there some lessons that we can learn well the conflict minerals regulation was the first due diligence mandatory due diligence regulation we had in the eu i think it's kind of blueprint for a lot of laws that came later and so we learned a lot from it uh, it wasn't perfect for example uh, the due diligence part, the mandatory part, was only focusing on the upstream sector. This means the part of the supply chain from the mine to the first traders to the smelter. And the idea was, hey, the smelter can have the knowledge from which mines they source, and so they are kind of bottleneck, and the rest of the industry should not be bothered with any obligations. Um, so, and it was mainly driven by the conflict in the DRC, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, well, there are a few analyses that say there is some improvement, but less than expected. Uh, but it helped to bring out uh, a little bit, I think, child work is, for example, less. And also there's now a knowledge what is happening along the supply chains. Uh, and companies, a lot of companies care what is happening on the ground and start changing our their their behavior and try to improve the situation on the ground. So I think this is the benefits. The challenges or talk frankly, uh, the problems we, we see are not all conflicts were covered by this conflict minerals regulation. Uh, and so like land conflicts, water conflicts were not covered by this regulation. And this are, in, 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 as far as I see it, are uh, the main causes for local conflicts, why people block uh, the access to to mining compound. Uh, and so we hope with due diligence laws, with the battery regulation, and maybe with a lot of improvement with the Critical Raw Materials Act, um, there might be a better chance to address these conflicts also in the future. But still, as long as we need more and more metals, there will be pressure on the local communities and we will have conflicts between our mining and local people who don't want uh, want to have the mine in their background or in the neighborhood or nearby i'm going to ask you a devil's advocate question i'm sure you'll understand but i think our listeners also uh, deserve to hear it um 
are environmental organizations like yours being a bit hypocritical? So that there we are, we're calling for, for a complete energy transition. Battery technology needs lithium, it needs cobalt, it needs nickel. Uh, if we're going to have the transmission systems for renewable energies, it needs copper. If you're subtly saying to us, we should just have less demand, what's your solution about how we deliver the energy transition and deliver those technologies? Yeah, I'm not, we're not only an environmental organization, but also uh, caring for human rights and social rights. So, uh, of course, this is the debate we have. Uh, how much do we need for the future? Uh, and to make it 100% sure, we need an energy transition. We need solar energy. We need wind energy. Um, we also need battery uh, mobility. So, cars with batteries um, moving. But we need less cars. We need smaller cars. Uh, we need uh, to think cities and rural sites differently. So how can we make sure that the supermarket is not built outside of the village, but inside the village so that people can also walk by or go there by bike or, or need smaller cars not to drive that, that far away? I think these are issues. So we need to tackle the consumption issue. But at the same time, we are not an anti-mining group. So we also see the need uh, of mining in the future, hopefully less. And then we have to uh, find uh, a consent. Uh, we need, for example, free prior informed consent by indigenous people. And if they say no, we have to search somewhere else for the metals. And we have to address overconsumption. Uh, I mean, you mentioned lithium. There was this interesting research by, I think, journalists in the UK that say that with this, say this, uh, one-way electro cigarettes uh, are thrown away uh, and in there was so much lithium you can fuel I don't know how many hundred or thousand uh, batteries for for cars and why do we have such a sorry stupid product like a one-way throwaway electro cigarette I mean it's it's, it's deadly on so many levels uh, it's unbelievable I'm a bit of an anti-smoking campaigner so I do agree with you and I very much worry about vaping um getting the next generation of young people into smoking uh but again cigarette companies feel free to come on and, and tell us your story um and i couldn't agree with you more about indigenous people i think if there's one thing i would see in the critical law materials act is the direct reference to ILO convention 169 and the rights of indigenous people for prior and informed uh consent i can't see any reason why why that shouldn't be done so i hope it will be to add on this it's also the, the local communities. Uh, we have a huge debate in the moment uh, about the right to say no. And if we see, for example, in the northern part of Spain, uh, where we have UNESCO heritage areas, or where we have water protection areas, where we have biodiversity hotspots, we really have to discuss, do we need these metals? And for what are we using them? And if we use them for a 2.5 tons heavy car, well, maybe it is not possible for the future, for our future, for the future of our kids and the grandkids, are uh, and for the planet. I mean, this is this is a debate you mentioned before. I mean, is this discussed in the public? And I would say no. It's sadly still an expert debate between, especially industry and politicians. But we have to bring it back on the table. What is the kind of lifestyle we want to have, and what can we afford to have in the planetary boundaries? 
And we're going to visit that many times, I'm frankly speaking. Probably we're at the last question now, Michael. You've been terribly interesting. But um, as a former politician, I do look at the geopolitics and I understand the European Union's desire to have strategic autonomy, as they call it. They don't want to be dependent on uh, countries uh, that are fragile or possibly worse than that in terms of European interests. We know that China did cut off the supply of rare earths to Japan over a, a, a political dispute. I think Indonesia have done the same, but I think you've got an interesting story about how it works both way from an Indonesian perspective, which I'd like to hear. Um, uh, there's this wonderful word, friendshoring. We all know about offshoring and insourcing. Uh, the word is friendshoring. So the, that's the idea that Europe's got certain friendly allies that it does trust to have uh, good and reliable relationships with, and that's where the materials should should come from. So this is all about politics and geopolitics. Tell us a bit your perspective on that, and in particular that issue of Indonesia. Yes, maybe uh, I have one or two senses on China. I'm not a uh, China expert, um, but I met someone who was kind of a German delegation um, meeting with China. and. You mentioned the raw earth export ban or the massive reduction uh, in 2013, which was actually the time when we got the first raw materials initiative and the first debates on the European floor. I mean, that's a little bit like the the, the beginning of, of, of this geopolitical debate. But China had locally a lot of problems with this raw earth element mining because it was, I think, our... In German, we call it Fagesellschaft, connected uh, with uh, radioactive material. So they really destroyed their landscapes. They had local protests. They had environmental protests. So there was a need to react of the Chinese government on these issues. If the export ban was the smartest, <laughs> and if they also used it against Japan in this trade conflict, um, yes, there, there might be opportunities. But even China has to react on issues we, we tackle today uh, on the environmental issues, on the um, human rights issues, on the social problems, social conflicts we see. Um, and yes, I also agree. Um, China is um, was technically quite smart in securing their access to metals and minerals and also securing their share on smelting and refining. And to be honest, yes, we also have to find ways to smelt and refine materials in Europe um, and especially we need this also for the circular economy and this friendshoring might be an interesting part especially if we also take care about the ideas the political strategies of our friends befriended nations befriended governments or for example that they want to increase their value uh, in the value chain. So not only exporting the ore, but also have smelters, refiners, maybe produce batteries or parts of batteries or cars in the end. And this will be interesting to follow up if the EU in the end is acting differently from China or differently from the US or other countries. And Indonesia is one interesting example because Indonesia said, well, we have a lot of nickel. We are the biggest nickel producer in the world. You need this for your batteries, but we don't want to be the exporter of ore. So they banned the pure nickel ore export. 
And they did the same with bauxite uh, this summer uh, again. And what happened within, uh, with this, uh, well, after this nickel export ban, the, especially China, built smelters and refiners in the country. So they extended their value chain locally. And it, it, is, it, it has uh, workers' issues and workers' rights um, issues. It has environmental issues on the one side. But on the other side, it worked to a certain extent that there is now more, more, working, uh, more jobs, more workers, more value in the country. But sadly, the EU uh, and I think also the US and Japan, if I'm right, took them in front of the WTO, the World Trade Organization's court, and said, well, this export ban is not our part of the international rules. You are not allowed to do that because you signed with the membership to the WTO that you don't export, uh, ban, uh, block exports of, of ore. So there's a conflict. Is Indonesia a befriended country? And do we accept that they have a industry plan increasing their values and value chain? Uh, or do we say, well, we need this, we need this nickel, uh, and you signed this contract, and you have to export it to us. And um, I think a lot of countries, a lot of governments will follow up what is happening on that. I, I mean, the Indonesian government <laughs> reacted and said, oh, wait, we don't care about this court. Uh, we, may, we do a veto, and now we export also bauxite and say we uh, don't export uh, cobalt and copper in the future. But, uh, well, Indonesia is maybe more powerful than some smaller countries in the world, and this case could be one of the most interested uh, trade issues for the next few years. Good development principles, of course, mean that we should be de encouraging developing countries to add value and have production within their own countries and not just seek to import the raw materials. So that, that, that action by the European Union and others in the WTO does seem contrary to good development principles. Uh, and maybe instead of worrying about China coming in and developing capacity within Indonesia, and which, by the way, is also true in Democratic Republic of Congo, where there's been massive Chinese investment, but there is dissatisfaction with it, interestingly, in DRC itself, and, and local actors aren't uncritical of, of what the Chinese are doing. Maybe uh, Europe should be thinking more about doing what China has been doing, uh, working in partnership with developing countries rather than simply taking them to the WTO. Just an opinion. Um, Mikhail, thank you so much for a really good discussion about what is a complicated but vital area. Uh, and for those people that are not in mining and think, well, this is just about mining, think again. It's for everyone in business that uses raw materials, and that's most of us. Uh, and when you say that it's been too much an expert debate and not a public debate, I hope that, frankly speaking, today is helping in a small way to publicize this and certainly your work at PowerShift uh, is really has been and the network that you're also involved with Europe-wide um, is playing a really important role in this. So thank you so much for, for joining us and for bringing a spotlight on what is a really important discussion. Sadly, we have come to the end of our podcast. Thank you very much to Mikhail for joining us. You've been listening to Frankly Speaking, the Frank Bold podcast on responsible business. We would like to invite all our audience to send us your feedback 
to franklyspeaking at frankbold.org and to share this conversation. Watch out for our next episode and find out more about what Frank Bold's Responsible Companies section on our social media accounts. Thank you again, Mike Michal, and to all of you for listening. Do join us next time and goodbye. Mm-hmm.